on today's episode of Unlocking the Club, we'll be joined by one of my dear friends, Beverly Odin. Beverly is a counselor and entrepreneur who started her career as a journalist for Sports Illustrated before going on to produce documentaries for Fox's Beyond the Glory. Beyond the Glory was a documentary series that profiled some of the most legendary and controversial athletes in recent history. Before entering the field of journalism, Beverly competed on the 1996 Olympic volleyball team in the Olympic Games held in Atlanta, adding the title of Olympian to her resume along with her two older sisters, Kim and Elena. Odin's journey has led her to being a voice for athletes and mental health, racialized trauma, therapy for trauma, and more. That has included playing a pivotal role in the formation of the Odin Commission in Orange County, California. The Odin Commission aims to hold discussions on racial profiling between residents and law enforcement. Welcome to Unlocking the Club with our special guest, Beverly Odin. Welcome to the Unlocking the Club podcast, where we host honest and direct conversations about journeys of access, personal truth, and reclaiming space. We share our truth so that you can find the key to own your truth, honor your journey, and reclaim your space. Grab your keys, your wallet, your phone, and invite your friends to meet you at the club. Here's your host, Angela Taylor. Hey there, I'm Angela Taylor, your host for Unlocking the Club. And today we're going to actually have a really interesting and candid conversation where we unlock friendship, fellowship, and finding your authentic voice. One of the things that I've learned over the last few years, um, particularly in COVID, I think we all have realized uh, that we've had more time with ourselves and we may understand ourselves a little bit better than we did before because we've actually created space for us to be with ourselves. And one of the things that I realize more than ever is how important my family and my friends have been to me. Uh, and that is the reason I'm really excited about today's conversation where uh, I have a conversation with one of my best friends, uh, someone who has helped me find my authentic voice, someone who has been there when I was trying to figure out how to get into a club and didn't quite know how to do so. Um, and either realizing it wasn't the club that I actually wanted to enter or that I actually was already there um, in a club that was actually fit for me. And so uh, we're gonna have a conversation about a, a myriad of different things as we always do when we get on the phone or have a chance to be in each other's company. Um, so we're gonna peel back the curtain and invite you into some of those candid conversations where we learn about ourselves and learn about each other and learn about life through the discourse where we can challenge each other, where we can agree, or we can agree to disagree um, during the course of the conversation. So today on Unlocking the Club, I really am honored and excited to introduce you to someone who will actually be a co-host on occasion on Unlocking the Club, my dear friend, Beverly Odin. Bev, welcome, welcome to Unlocking the Club. I can't believe I actually got you on here. How are you doing today? <laughs> you know what? I'm doing well, and you did pretty good at that introduction. I was a little worried about it, but that's pretty good. <laughs> a full disclosure, a little background, uh, before the show and in the, in the days leading up to it, Bev and I went back and forth about bios. And uh, I think Bev has a particular position around um, biographies or not, uh, and uh, just prefers probably just to, to come as you are. Um, but uh, I'm glad that uh, that bio met your approval. 
yeah, I'm a wing it kind of person, like whatever you feel like saying, I've learned to let go. This is probably my counseling stuff. Just let go of control of that. Let you do what you want. Good job. All right. Well, it, I, I, on the other hand, have not <laughs> to that point of letting go. Um, but speaking about letting go and just coming in to the space and sharing who you are, tell us a little bit about who Beverly Odin is. Yeah, that is an interesting question because I've been a lot of people. <laughs> and I think that's part of my story is that I love variety. And so I have found myself going from new thing to new thing. I love adventure. And so um, my career, as, as I look back on it, has been very um, eclectic. I like the word eclectic. Um, and I've really pursued things that I love. I think I've loved every single one of my jobs and I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, uh, you know, I started out as an athlete, um, was on the elite athlete track from the get-go because my older sisters were just phenoms in volleyball. And so I followed in their footsteps, went to Stanford, um, won a national championship there my senior year, and then went on to the national. I'm in good company with another national champion, by the way, multiple, not gonna talk about that. But anywho, went on to the national team, um, trained with them for three years and um, played in the Olympics, like you said, in Atlanta. That did not go how we wanted it to go. And so that was a big disappointment. And though I had planned to continue and go to multiple Olympics and play overseas and do all these things, at that point, I was so demoralized and just kind of burnt out that I decided, you know what, I'm done. And it was early. It was early in my career. I was maybe 24, which is young for volleyball. Um, I think you peak around 30. And so there were, I had years left. I was healthy. People didn't understand it. Um, but I did it anyway. And that's going to be a theme, as you'll see. As I go through. <laughs> do it anyway. That's your book, right? Did, did it, it anyway. anyway. Yep. And so, yeah. So then I ended up in um, New York working at Sports Illustrated, which was like a dream and a wonderful experience and just a time when there was so much um, energy and money in magazines. And so just living like the last, the last like vestige of that time in history where like there was just money in magazines and it was like the real Sports Illustrated, you know, and getting that experience. Then went back to grad school at Berkeley, uh, got my um, graduate degree in journalism, worked in documentary film for a while in LA, and then um, came back to Orange County, California, where I'm from. And, you know, started a business, did not go well, didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then got back into television, you know, for a little bit. And then I started another business. And this one, actually, I figured it out, kind of like how, how, to, <laughs> how to do this, what I need to do. And now I'm going through another career change. So I am, I, during COVID, I went back to school and um, I am currently finishing up a graduate degree in uh, clinical mental health counseling. So I'm earning my hours now toward graduation and then I'll earn my hours towards licensure after that. So that's where we're at. That's amazing. That's amazing. There's so much that we need to unpack from what you just shared. Um, one thing, right, is for this current generation of young people, they probably don't know what life was like when magazines, there was a lot of money in magazines. <laughs> it's a completely different world now than it was um, back at that time. 
Yeah. And I think Sports Illustrated was like the pinnacle of like sports journalism at that time. We still had these like kind of um, amazing writers, long form writing, right? Like that has gone the way of the dinosaur also, right? Everyone wants short verse, but there are these long, just flowing, flowery, beautiful profiles of these athletes and uh, people sat down to read paper in their hands, you know? Um, and so, you know, the lifestyle we led, we we had cars come pick us up and take us home. Like, we're, you know, pretty much chauffeured cars, right? <laughs> and like, they fed us every uh, Sunday. Okay, I was on the subway. I know, and, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I was in a nice warm car with the heat going. I was like door to door. It was wonderful, you know? And the, you know, the parties, oh goodness. Uh, let me not start on the Christmas parties. Just lavish. It was a little after like the three martini lunch section where all the men would go to lunch for two hours. And it was a little bit after that. So it had kind of become a little more business-like, more appropriate. There are more women in, in the system, but we were still on the outside, talking about clubs, right? We were still on the outside of that club there. There was a whole men's thing going on and we were like, hey, hi, we're here. And so it was, it was, I learned a ton and I, and I had a great time. I met great people. It was a process, right, of changing and it's still not changed, right? But I think we are getting towards it being a little bit better and more hospitable for women in the sports industry. Well, and I think journalism is a thing, right? We're having this conversation now because of the discourse that's happening really around the world, but specifically here in the United States, where messaging does not fully represent what is actually happening. We just you know, saw some recent events in Buffalo where the messaging behind the, the shooter was very different than the messaging has been in other cases where that individual um, was a person of color. And so you mentioned the club in journalism and already for you inside of the club, feeling like you were club adjacent, which is a term you've used quite often that I actually really love. And I think it's, it speaks volumes. There's so much there, but it still hasn't changed over time. When we look at the, the voices that are actually telling our stories, don't represent the stories that need to be told. And so tell us more about that club and your sense of when you were in the club, still feeling like you were on the outside as a woman of color. Yeah. So that yeah, so there's that's the intersectionality, right? So I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color, right? So there's two different levels that I'm kind of fighting against and trying to work through. Um, on the on the woman front, it was sort of the beginning of inviting women into the building, right? So it was no longer all male, just testosterone city in there. There were several women, right? That were, I had a woman office mate, Tracy, you know her very well. And, you know, there were, there were other women coming in with varying levels of sports knowledge. And so that was what, was what was interesting to me, right? Like, so I'm coming in as an elite athlete who understands these athletes, these pro athletes, males, probably better than a lot of the men who didn't play anything. And it's different the way people come at sports as a fan versus the way you come at sports as an athlete. And so for me, I had an, a depth of knowledge at the at the visceral level of what what was going on with these guys that I don't feel like they really got to some extent. I mean, the most of them, maybe they played high school, maybe not, you know, like it was it wasn't at the same level. And so for and in a certain way, I felt like I had more 
to bring to the table than them, but they had all the writing knowledge and all the history and all the, they have the stats on like feed dial in their head, right? And so when you watch it as a fan, I think you, you, you do that, right? You get caught up in the stats and who's this and who's that and who's getting traded and stuff. Whereas for me, it was more about the stories and the people and, you know, the stories of these championships and how people got there, you know, and like what the athletes might be going through. Like, that's where I was at. So it was just interesting to kind of be one of the women there who knew the most about sports, one of the people there, right, who knew the most about sports, but particularly in the women they're choosing, right? Often they were choosing women to come in who maybe didn't even have a sports background. They had worked in something else entirely. I mean, they have a writing background, but it's like they're not bringing that to the table. So it makes it hard for them to, you know, go up the ladder and to even sit in conversations with these guys who are going from sport to sport, throwing names, throwing coaches, throwing this, that and the other and not having that background knowledge, you know. And so it was a little bit it was a little bit. I'm used to being on the outside. So that's another thing, right? So I'm used to, I grew up in Irvine, California, where I was one of the only Black people in cl- in my classes, right? There were a few Black people in the school, right? Maybe uh, counted on one hand, right? But I was always an outsider, you know? And then I played volleyball, which was a very country club type sport. It was an expensive sport to play. I played in Newport Beach, California, where everybody was like wealthy, Everybody was white, everybody was blonde and thin, right? And so, and I loved my teammates. That There's nothing, I'm not saying anything bad about them. That's just what they were, right? And I did not feel like I was that. So I'm out at school, I'm out in volleyball. I get, I go to Stanford. And honestly, Stanford was probably the one place, weirdly, where I felt the most in because everybody there was kind of, It was like the land of misfit toys to me. You know what I mean? It's like all these weirdo, like freakishly good at one thing people who were like kind of nerdy, but also like really talented and like, but nobody was normal, right? Like I feel like there wasn't a lot of normal there. And so there was some comfort in that, just being like, everybody's weird here. This is great. You know, I finally felt, of course, there are other things about Stanford where I didn't feel that, right? But so by the time I get to Sports Illustrated, I'm pretty used to being an outsider looking in the window and just trying to glean what I can, um, learn as much as I can, use it as well as I can, and, you know, go from there. But it's like the, the need to be in, since I never was in, I didn't have that, right? So I wasn't trying to be at the poker games at night or trying to like, you know what I mean? Trying to be in, in, because I didn't feel like that was a thing I I really had access to. Right, right. Now, I I love how you've taken us on this journey and this arc into being club adjacent. And your complete awareness and understanding of that and being okay with it at different stages of your journey I get curious, you know, you talked about earlier when you were talking about your experience at Sports Illustrated and you used the word, maybe I knew more about sports than others. And they definitely had more data and statistics than I had. I wonder if the our sense of belonging to the club wasn't necessarily in the willingness or the interest in the intrapersonal aspects of it but the systemic things of being seen and heard and having your voice valued. 
Was that a different feeling or sense or desire for you? Uh, here's what I would say. I think it has taken me a long time to find my actual voice, right? Because you're in those situations where nobody really cares to hear your voice. And if you're going to, if you're going to express something, you've got to be pretty on it, pretty aggressive about it, because otherwise you're going to get squeezed out. Like it's, it's just such a competitive, such a, um, male dominated such you know such a it's a sp very specific world i didn't necessarily at that point at 24 first job feel like oh okay let me get my voice heard i was still trying to figure out what my voice was right like and it took me a long time to get to the point where i think i know what that is now and i'm open to the fact that i'm still growing and changing still right like i've but that doesn't mean I can't express who I am in this moment and just be able to 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 live in that space. This is me right now. I don't I'm not perfect. I don't know all the stats, you know, but I, I belong here and I'm smart enough to be here and I know my stuff. I know some stuff better than you and I can contribute to this situation. Right. Like and I wasn't there yet. I would say that took me a lot longer. Well, what was that process like? <laughs> no, right? How much time do we have? Do we I have know. a sofa? Do we have a sofa? Right? Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> okay. So with that, you are unlocking some of my family stuff, right? So being the youngest of four, I often... And you, you're the youngest too, right? So there's certain things that youngest kids get that other people don't. Like there's, there's just, <laughs> there's just a sense of like your, your high, you're in the hierarchy. You ain't at the top, right? It's not, it's not. <laughs> it was clear, <laughs> and that just keeps getting, you know, laid upon you. And an example, and no matter how much you try, right, to be like, no, no, me. What about me? You know, then they're like, well, you're just a selfish little youngest kid. You get everything you want. You know what I mean? There's like that whole narrative. Well, speak for yourself on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been true of some of us. I'm just right. saying, but. Anywho, like, I feel like that you, once you learn that, right, that like, oh, okay, other people's voices are more important than mine, you kind of take that with you into your life. And so I think when I, by the time I had a Sports Illustrated, that was probably the first time I was really on my own. I'm living in New York City, which is like such a, like a freedom place, right? Like when I think of New York, I think of like, whatever you want, whenever you want, uh, you know, city that never sleeps, you know, yeah. and you could really do whatever, be whatever. You see all the races, you see all the cultures, you, you know, it's like everything is there. It's like you feel like you're in the center of the universe, right? right. You run into Malik Yoba on the street. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Among others. <laughs> yeah, but he was one of my favorites, sure. Yeah. 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 So I think being there and I think that's a great place to discover yourself, don't you? I mean, you live there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that um, I was telling somebody this story the other day, and you brought it to my attention, is um, we were in New York around the same time, and I was nervous about moving to New York. I'm from Mountain Home, Idaho, right? Going to the Bay Area and Stanford, you're in a little bit of utopia, right? So you're still in a protected space. And so um, it was, 
really meaningful that I knew somebody. Like, right, we weren't the best of friends at Stanford. Like, we like were in the same freshman dorm, and we went to some of the same events. We uh, participated in the talent show our freshman year, and like with the Branner. But in New York, we really got to know one another, and we had a, found out we had a lot in common. But one of the things that I remember about New York is um, the nightlife, for sure. Like, right, so when me and our friends, Jeff and, and Elizabeth and whoever, and um, Woo and everybody else would go to clubs, I remember, like, there was a certain sense of anonymity. That So when you went to these cl- clubs, um, that I would pop up to the front and say, hey, um, with the WNBA, have a group of friends, can we get in? And right, we got into clubs, and you were always like, wait a minute, who is this Angela? Like, right? Like, who is this showing up? And and I couldn't even explain it. I didn't even recognize. But in that moment, I felt confident to be able to do something that I would never would have done in another situation. And I think New York um, kind of facilitated this energy in me. That is so interesting, because I that is one of my memories from, from New York, right? It's like going into these clubs, these nightclubs, guys, picture this. Nels. Remember Nels? Nels is my Nels. favorite, right? I don't that was think a it's, spot. That was a spot. Yeah, it was a spot. <laughs> and it just was like this, this great, wonderful, warm, like inviting place. The line, though, around the corner, right? And so you had to sit out there in the cold and wait till you could get in. And, you know, Miss Taylor here would come in with all of her confidence and be like, you know, just walk straight up to the front and be like, I'm with the WBA. These are my, these, you know, we, we were athletes at that time. You know, I still look like an athlete. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm with the WBA. So what? You know, yeah. <laughs> and then we would just be able to skip the line and walk in. I, I've never had that experience. And so that's why it struck me so much is that, wow, you know, it's like, it, it's like, it's all, is it that easy? Right. Do we just have to like act like we know, right? Is is that all there is to it? It it just makes you wonder, right? Like if, yes. if some of being out of the club is just not not knowing what to do or try or say that other people are like, hey, I'll try it if he not if he says no, then we'll leave, you know? Yeah, I, I do. I think that there's to a certain extent that whole situation, the more I thought about it um and 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 building the show, um, is a, a metaphor for real life. And that if you do have confidence and if you think that you belong, if you know you belong in certain places, like, right? And at the end of the day, if they said no, we would have gone to the back of the line and been okay. But I think in so many situations for me in my corporate career, I didn't ask. I didn't ask for help. I didn't ask for an opportunity. Like any of that showing up with that confidence because I was so caught up in needing others to see me for what I brought to the table. And that was such an interesting juxtaposition of how I showed up going to the clubs and how I showed up in my corporate space. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I know you're probably going to talk a lot about this, but I would love to hear more about how you experienced that at the WNBA, because what I experienced for myself, right, is, is that, you know, I have the athlete mentality, right? So I got to the top of the athlete world by being the best. Right. Like, so the, part of it is like, if I just am the best in this job, people will notice and then I will climb up. Right. And the business world doesn't work like that, really. Like the sports world, I beat her. Right. I beat her. I'm better than her. It's so obvious. Right. Because like I beat her on a daily. Right. So, I, I, you know, in the business world, you know, it's more about how you are 
um, tooting your own horn in a certain sense, right? Which is something that I never had to do because of my actions, right? They, they tooted my horn, right? And I'm uncomfortable with, right? So you, then you notice, oh, okay, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this also. Like to be like, hey, did you see the thing I did? Isn't this thing so good, right? <laughs> it's like, that feels stupid to me. It's like, if you don't know this is good, that's your problem, right? You're, you're, you're the one who's missing out, right? But then I'm the one missing out because these guys who are doing way less than me and sometimes claiming my work for their own, Lying, people lied on me and said I did stuff I didn't do. And then they come off like this, you know, this wonderful, like, and it's like, I'm the one who's there until can't see, right? After dark, everybody's gone. I'm still in there doing my work. I'm in there first in the morning. But it's like the bosses have been gone since five. So people would see, okay, the bosses are gone. I can leave, right? I was like, shoot, I'm going to get this work done. Right. I'm going to get this done. Right. And it's it's it was more about feeling like at some point they're going to notice. And they do not notice that there is a piece of that where you have to then, yes, say, here's the thing I did. Boom. Look at it, you know, and 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 trying to kind of bring that out. And I wonder how you notice that in 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 the WNBA and your other. Oh. So much, so much. When you said what what hit me and had me going back however many years was when you talked about someone lying on you. I, I think as a Black woman, the one thing that I knew I had in the corporate space was my integrity. Mm. Like, that's the one thing, was my name. Like, was was my family name. And, and we took pride, and you were a product of a military family as well, so you know like right, being loyal and honest and all those things, being in integrity uh, is of the utmost importance. And so, you know, the first time someone lied on me, like I, I lost it, like relatively speaking, like, right, I think Bev and Angela losing it is just all relative to, to <laughs> most of society, right? Um, but I was not happy and realized how important like my name and my word was to me. Um, but also what you're speaking of is in sports and in the military, it's almost of a meritocracy, right? And I heard for so long in my life from my parents, it was like, put your head down, work hard, get good grades, right? Get an education, get a degree, do the same thing over when you get into the workplace, put your head down, work, dot your I's, cross your T's, right? Go early, show up late or stay late, like all of those things. And it got us to a certain threshold. It did, like, right? Because we became the technical expert at what we did. You, as an Olympian, you were at the pinnacle. That got you to the top of the ecosystem. In the corporate space, those are no longer the roles, right? That gets you, gets you in the door and gets you an opportunity. And certainly, like, right at to a certain level um, where you're valued. But the system wants to keep you there when you're working hard. It wants to keep you in that space. It doesn't want to pull you through so that you can get that executive opportunity. And what pulls you through is social capital, is relationships. It's going to the martini bar and hanging out with folks. It's going to, and playing golf. It's all of those things that we're familiar with people that were at the top of the ecosystem that don't look like us and enjoy things that we don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that's so true. So for, for my one of my jobs, it was the poker game, right? At the boss's house that I didn't even know was happening, by the way, till many years later when they were like, oh yeah, you were never at the poker games. Really? There were poker games? Right? Really? Had no idea. But at the, all? At all. Did not know it was happening. Right? And so to me, the part of it is like, 
No, I if I had been invited, would I have gone to a poker night at boss's house? Probably not. It's not my thing. I, I love playing poker. That's not it. It's just like, but like <laughs> the environment of being in an all men's group, right? And 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 the reason I'm not invited is because they don't really want women in there, right? Like that's a boys night. That's what a, that's what the boys are doing tonight. And we, when we come in, bring a different energy. And that means they have to bring a different energy or they feel they do, right? Where it's like, oh, there's a woman in the room, right? Okay, so clean that up. Don't talk about that. You know what I mean? They have to adjust themselves for us in a way that I'm not sure we have to adjust ourselves for them. I think we adjust ourselves, but not in such a stark (laughs) night and day kind of way. Right. Yeah. And so I don't think they would have invited. And that's part of it, right? It's like, I'm showing up as a Black woman there's a, a bit of invisibility in like, they wouldn't have even thought to ask me, right? Because yeah. it's like, I don't look like them. I don't like the same things. I, I don't talk about the same things, you know? So it doesn't even occur to them, oh, should we should we ask her if she wants to join us? Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't even cross their mind. And part of what we need to do is is get seen without then being overbearing, right? Because then there's the woman card, right? Where it's like, they really don't want you pushing down those walls and pushing those barriers like that. And how we do that matters because a man could do it and it feels different. It just feels different. And and that's the truth. No, that's such a good point. I, I think that, right, the, the challenge and the opportunity is like, you don't have to go from zero to 60, like, right. You don't have to go from, and, and I think we were rock stars at compartmentalizing our lives. Like I actually yeah. took pride in it. Right. <laughs> um, but is finding the space. You don't have to enter that space where you're not comfortable or where they probably don't want you, but there's a happy medium. There's a space where there, um, you are welcome, that you feel comfortable, you actually want to be, and mm-hmm. finding that space. Because at the end of the day, the rules of the game are still to connect, mm-hmm. it's still to build trust with them. And so how can you prioritize being able to do that on your own terms and on your own turf? Like, how have you, have you been able to do that in other spaces in this eclectic journey that you're on? Hmm, that's really interesting. I think um, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no, right? So there's, there's some things that I wanted to change, right? Having seen that model, right? Like, this is what I keep doing. Do I want to keep doing the same thing that's not working? How can I switch it up a little bit? But knowing my personality, I knew I was never going to be the in your face. You got to promote me. Let me go to the poker game, girl. That is right. That right? Is like, that's just not going to happen. And so I think just settling into myself and like realizing I'm bringing myself as I am and letting you respond how you will. Because I think some of the time what I noticed about myself is I'm coming in within my head saying I'm a woman and I'm a Black person. Like I have to, there, there's a certain, um, I don't know what you would call it, but like a responsibility or something, or like a way of presenting myself that I'm trying to live in the norms, you know, but like also be above, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and yeah. so th- there's a lot of negotiating in there about who I'm being when I'm interacting with people that I've learned how to shed because it's almost like, People may not like me because I'm black, right? And they may not think I belong here because I'm a woman. But that doesn't mean I get to, I have to come in here small, right? Like if they're, that's kind of their issue, 
right? And if it's their issue, I can kind of dust my, the, put the dirt off my feet and move on, right? And so, and, and that's what I think I learned is like, I don't have to like grovel for scraps from the table, right? Like, like yes. I can just be me and then you can take it or leave it. But you know what I noticed is that when I am me and I've stepped into myself, that stuff is gone, right? Like it's not gone, gone, right? They still know I'm a black person and I'm a woman, yeah. but it's not the, the central part of the conversation because at some point they start hearing me, right? Cause I'm speaking with a voice that's clear and that makes sense. And they're connecting with that and not like the outside, right? And like, oh, this person is a, an other, right? <laughs> it's like, we're connecting at a different level. And so that's what I think I've learned. Just bring, just bring yourself to the table and just, and forget about all that stuff. It's not that it's not there, it is there, but it doesn't mean it has to make you smaller. And I think sometimes it does with people. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I mean, that is the point, right? When you're trying to unlock the club, First, decide if it's a club you want to belong to or not, right? Um, and I think so often what happens for, in my experience as a Black woman, and, and it's sounding like it's very similar for you, is on merit, when you're on the outside looking in, you think that you have to behave this way to be part of that club. You have to give up some of yourself to be in that club, um, or you have to fit that mold to, to be in the club and to navigate the system um, and we make it about ourselves. We're not good enough. We're less than, mm -hmm. we're not desired. All of those different things. And we need to reframe that a little bit, right? To be like, this is who I am. I'm confident enough to walk up to the, the guy at the front of the club and say, look, I got some folks. We want to get into the club. Like, right, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Um, but understanding that it's not you, it's the system. Exactly. And the system has not wanted us to be able to be in relationship with others, to build that connection, to forge those, right? Because when we do, we dominate. That's right. Yeah. And that's the lesson, right? It's like, it's like you're, you are operating in this system, this system that is set up <laughs> that we're at the bottom of it, right? Like we're, we're, we're in this system, but we don't have to, we don't have to let that control the way we interact with others. And I think when, when you're talking about that one-on-one -on -one interaction at that moment, it was just you and that bouncer, right? It wasn't the system, right? <laughs> it was like you and that bouncer, you were coming in, acting like you deserve to be there, right? Believing that you deserve to be there. And so he, he was like, she deserves to be here, right? Like, and, and so in that little microcosm world, it, it's, it worked. It worked, right? Like we are battling these systemic things that are like coming at us down from the top. And we, you know, we have to recognize that, but we, we don't have to operate by those rules, right? We can step out of that. And I think that's, you know, it's like you said, it's like a perfect example of how you just change the rules, you know? And, and, and it, it, we are able to unlock these things in ways that we may not expect, but because we don't try. You know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the things um, that I know that you're passionate about, and I think it's interesting as this, if you've been on this eclectic journey, um, I truly believe that um, every step on our journey is leading us to where we're going next. 
And where you are now is in this space, which I think is incredibly important, um, particularly around mental health. And because we don't necessarily in the black community or just as a whole in society, um, really talk about mental health and normalize it in a way. So I am so glad that we have someone like you with your perspective who is taking on this role in mental health as a counselor. We need more black counselors. We need more people with the perspective and the journey that you have um, in this role. And so I kind of want to tie you know, where you've been with where you are going in this, this counselor space and, and certainly talk about mental health and athletes. Um, but you said early on when you were introducing yourself um, and you were talking about your Olympic experience, um, that you were demoralized after 96. And that feeling had you ready to, to leave exit at 24. when you still had a decade plus over in like high earning opportunity. I mean, you were, you were the brand name for, for women's volleyball around the globe. Like, right, you could have commanded whatever dollar you probably wanted to. And I know you're looking and, and you're like, trust me, I would have been your agent and you would have been able to command like the highest dollar in any market, wherever you wanted to go for, for a decade, right? But you chose not to, but you used the frame, I was demoralized. Uh, and so I'm curious for you, you played volleyball for 15, 20 years at that point, right? Maybe, but somewhere in between there. And in a moment from from not succeeding on that stage in the Olympics, you closed the door forever and you moved on. What was the feeling of demoralization like? How did that cause you to shut the door and move forward? Well, here's what I'll say about that. Um, wow. So this is a really long story. So I'm gonna try and cut it down a little bit for you. Um, I, I'm a little different than most athletes in that, especially Olympic athletes, in that a lot of those athletes are pursuing their dreams, right? And they're like, this is what I've always wanted to do. I can't see myself doing anything else. I was doing it because my sisters did it. I was doing it because I was supposed to do it. And I was doing it because I happened to be good at it, right? Like I happened to also be good at it, right? But it wasn't like, the love of my life. And, and I think I could have been a lot better if it had been, right? Because it was like, I was working a job. And so I think that there are athletes out there who are doing that. And there are athletes out there who are pursuing their dreams, right? Yeah. And so what was interesting is I think as an athlete, you get really caught up in performance, obviously, right? Because you're constantly being judged. That was good. That was bad. You are good. You are bad, right? And it, and there's like this, it's uh, either or, right? There's no like, being okay is not okay, right? You got to be great, right? Mm. And so when you fail as an elite athlete who is used to winning at every level, yeah. it can really, um, when I say demoralize, I think that's a good word, demoralize, because it was like, my performance was me. Right. So so that I think a lot of athletes fall into that trap where it's like you think the way you do at this is who you are. And so when you lose at the thing you've been working at your whole life and lose in like spectacular fashion, we don't have to go into this, but it was bad. Right. So when you lose like that at the one thing you've been like 
blinders on, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am, it can destroy you internally, right? And so different athletes handle that in different ways. And I think some, some are healthier than others. And it really depends on a lot of things, your upbringing, your coaching, your mental health, you, you know, how much have you, do you have a support system? You know, like all these things, right, that we talk about. Well, I don't think that I had done a ton of work on who I was outside of the sport. Mm. And having had an abusive coach um, as a child, and can I tell you that also changes the way you interact with your your performance and yourself, right? It gets ingrained in you that you are good when you're playing well, you are bad when you're not playing, right? Like it's like, it gets ingrained in your being. And so when you have taken that kind of abuse and, and athletics has become about how much abuse can you take and still perform, that's what makes a great athlete. At that point, that's what made a great athlete. How much abuse can you take and still perform well? That's how we judged it, right? Yes. And so, yeah. And so it was like, yeah. So when we lost, yeah, I was demoralized. I was humiliated. I was... I was like despondent, you know? And I think because it was not the love of my life, I was able to be like, you know what? I can do something else. I don't have to keep doing this. I don't wanna keep doing this. And I have the ability of my Stanford degree, you know, I have interests outside. I have, I have like a, a sense of adventure where I wanna like drop everything and move to New York City and work at a place I've never done anything like, you know? Like I had that sense of adventure and that feeling like, yeah, I don't need to do this anymore. I can be good at something else. And I think that's where I was like, okay, I'm quitting. That's it. And people were surprised, but I think the people who knew me best were not, right? Because they knew I was, I was working a job, right? <laughs> from the get, from the time I started playing volleyball, it was a job. And it was it was a means to an end. I knew I could earn a scholarship to college, like at a great college, like a fantastic college, like a really yeah, good people. Yep. Yeah, well, some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great people, you know. And it's an expensive college that my parents would not have been able to afford, you know. So in a way, I was working for that scholarship. And I got that scholarship. I got that national championship, you know, check it off. I was checking boxes off. That's what I was doing. And then the next thing was the Olympics. It makes sense, right? It's the next thing. So you just check off that box. I thought it was going to end a lot differently. We had the ability to have won a medal. And that probably makes it worse, right? Because if you're just there like, oh, we're just so happy to admit to the Olympics. And there are some people like that, right? There's no chance at a medal. But they're just like, oh, my gosh, it's so cool to be here. People are like, didn't you? Like, wasn't that just amazing? And it's like, no, because we didn't go there just to go, right? We went there to win a gold medal. And we failed. So, so to me, like, like the whole, like, wasn't it such a great experience? You know, it's like, no, no, it wasn't. It was actually awful. It's probably my worst experience playing volleyball ever, right? And now, I can look back on it and say, oh, you know what? Though we saw Muhammad Ali light the torch, which was freaking cool. We met the dream team, which was awesome. You know, there were there were moments in there, but because it, the volleyball part looms so large, it's like it was so hard for me to talk about even, you know, for even me to go through that story. 
I, yeah, I pretty much put that story behind me. When I left, I said, you know what? I'm not talking about it anymore. I'm not talking to these people anymore. She's I'm not lying, folks. <laughs> she doesn't talk about this often. So thank you for sharing. This Just story. cut yeah. it off, you know? And so, you know, coming full circle now, you can hindsight 2020, I can say, yeah, it was a good experience. But yeah, the demoralization was about not having separated out myself as an athlete from myself as a person. And I think that's a big thing for athletes that they need to do even now. I think they're doing a much better job though. And I've been really encouraged to see that. Yeah. Well, one of the best things about um, this conversation is that it's not going to end in this episode because Bev is going to be a co-host and we are going to get into much more of this um, as we continue this conversation, because I think there's a lot of really interesting things that you just shared. One in particular, when you talked about, um, you know, the abusive coach um, as you were in youth volleyball, I want to dig into that. And I think that that in and of itself is probably an episode long feature to have that discussion. So um, won't tap into that today, but I want to circle back with something that you just alluded to about understanding who you are and, and conflating you know, being an athlete with that is who you are. I think that part of being an abusive coach or someone facilitating young people through sport is having you think that this is the only thing that you can do or that you're good at, right? Because they believe if you're distracted, if you like music or if you, you know, have other interests, it's taking you away from you being really good at this sport, which may be what you want or maybe how they are going to get to where they want to get to. So I think there's that. I would love to hear your thoughts around that concept. And I think the second one is one of the reasons I think both you and I um, really um, admire LeBron James for a lot of different reasons. We enjoy watching him play, but we also appreciate what he is doing off the court. And I don't think that he gets enough acknowledgement for the impact he is having in his community. But the more than an athlete concept of, of really, you know, when Fox News and different um, folks are saying, shut up and dribble of saying, no, we can have thoughts independent of, of our sport. Um, but there is the societal pressure, as well as from coaches and others, to keep athletes in this frame of mind where this is the end-all, be-all, until it isn't. And then you have to make that quick transition to try to earn a living. Like, what is your perspective around that concept? I mean, that's so true, right? So I, I think for the first thing you said is true, where, like, it, and I think this is changing. So I think that's really good that it's changing. But yeah, we used to have to focus only on this. So having friends and going out on Saturday night or like connecting with people was, sports was at the top of your list. And that's it. And if you were not willing to put everything else aside, family, it doesn't matter, right? Everything else aside, then you're not going to make it, right? And I think now we know that we need those other things. We're human beings who need those other things. We need these support systems. We need to foster our relationships. And that makes us better, right? It doesn't make us worse. Like having rest, you know, leaving it behind and being like, that was over there. Now I'm at home, right? Like, it's almost like I think about the military, right? When it's like you're at war and then you're back in civilization, right? And you have to make a shift, right? And they wanted us in warrior mode all the time. And so I think that was kind of rough. It's a rough transition, like you said, when all of a sudden, now you're not that, and now you're supposed to be a civilian. So go about your business, you know? And it's like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so like, nobody told me how to do this, right? And I think that's part of what's changing now. 
is that these athletes are starting to speak up. Like what you said, like, you know, shut up and dribble. And, you know, that that's across the board, too. They told the Dixie Chicks that, right? Set up, shut up and sing, right? It's like, we put you in this category and this is what you get to do. And yeah, so entertain us. Huh? Entertain, entertain us. Entertain right? us, right? And whatever way that you do that, but it, don't say anything about anything. It's not like you're a person living in society who's experiencing things, uh, you know, in your own life, right? It's like you are this person. And, and, and you know, when they talk about like building our brands, right? It was almost like you had to be your brand, you know? Like this is my brand, so I can't go off brand and then do a Black Lives Matter thing. Right. Because it's like, you know what I mean? Because it's like I I'm, you know, I'm the person who like kind of, you know, gets along with everybody and it fits into all sorts of things. And then you're confronting some things that are hard for people. It changes how they look at you. And, you know, like and so what I what I love about the athletes of today is that they're kind of throwing out all those old rules and just saying. Right. It's like and I get they don't care that you don't like it or that you're uncomfortable with it. I mean, Simone Biles, to do what she did. I mean, I come back to that a lot where it's like this woman, people don't realize how what she did when she said, I'm not competing today in the Olympics. It had to go against everything she's ever been taught, every fiber of her being, all of the, you're letting your country down, you're letting your teammates down, you're letting the world down, you know, you have to do this, you're the best, you know, like all of those things in that moment, she chose her mental health over all of that stuff. And people don't realize how hard that must have been for her. They're like, oh, you know, it's like almost dismissive. Like she, you know, you know, she quit. Right. <laughs> it's like that's like that's the easy way out or something. No, the easy way out would have been to say, which is what I would have done 20 years ago. Oh, my ankle. I think I when I hit my I think I hit my ankle. I'm yeah. hurt. You know, I can't compete. That's the only thing they'll take as an excuse. Right. And so I might have been tempted to just do that. Right. But no, she went on and said, this is I'm quitting because of my mental health. I mean, the courage. You know, like I get floored by that. I think about it sometimes. I get floored by it because it's like that just was not an available option for so many years. And to see her, to see Michael Phelps, you know, he's doing a lot of things on mental health. You know, uh, Naomi Osaka, um, the U.S. gymnastics team, the whole thing, Ali Raisman with the, you know, and it's like all of a sudden people are just like, you know what? Like, I get it. You know, but I like it was almost like we were talking about before. I'm just going to be me and you can react however you're going to react. But it's not going to change the fact that I need to take care of myself in this moment. And I'm just going to go ahead and do that. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love it, too. I love it. The humanity, the humanity and, and what what you did in 1996 and thereafter, when you made the decision to walk away from something that wasn't healthy for you, that was a job. Um, and what Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and Naomi Osaka and the list goes on and on that you had mentioned are doing is unlocking the club for athletes and mental health. And that is something, that is a topic that um, I definitely want to spend the time to normalize it and have a much more regular discussion and discourse about this. And, and I want to invite you back to have that conversation because I think you have such a unique, a unique perspective on it as an elite athlete, knowing what it was like and also as a, a 
counselor and a therapist um, doing this work. And so I want to thank Bev Odin for, for joining us on today's episode of Unlocking the Club. I'm not quite done yet, Bev. And as you can see, we could talk forever, but I want to see uh, if you were willing and able to join us for the back nine where we send you through kind of a little bit of a hot seat uh, obstacle course, if you will, of questions just to find out a little bit more about you. You up uh, for it? I'm a little nervous, but I, you know, okay, let's do this. All right, there's a good, there's a good. All right, we'll be right back with the back nine in Beverly Hills. All right, Beth. So first question is an easy one, and I'll make it easier for you. Aside from the Unlocking the Club podcast, what is one of your favorite podcasts? Um, I love uh, Chris Hayes's. Um, why is this happening? I think he does amazing things and talks to amazing people. And um, he's such a great interviewer. So it is one of my favorites. No, that's a good one. Definitely a good one. Uh, besides your home, the place that you feel safest to be yourself. Oh, wow. Gosh. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I would say with my 50 plus church lady buddies who have never been married and don't have kids right mm. so we we are we are similar in so many ways and i think that the society has told us we shouldn't have done it like this and this is wrong and we're missing something but in that space it's just it's so, it's so comfortable and so warm and so welcoming and so normal so okay so that's probably where i'd say i love it i love it What's one thing that you um, walk into with trepidation every time? Uh, I think meeting new potential clients um, because I think I go into my head about that, about like, what are they going to think of me? You know, again, going into my body, how I, I'm six foot two, I'm a very large black woman, right? And I, I, I exude a certain thing that I don't think matches my personality. And so I worry about how I'm uh, perceived, but then I learn to go through a whole thing where I then put that aside and then go meet the person as me and let it go. But yeah, I think I still struggle with that, that initial moment of you're about to meet someone, you know, how are you presenting yourself? Yeah, yeah. Hey, have them call me, right? <laughs> One of the best people in the world um, who, again, like the kindest of hearts. So. Um, so hopefully they get past that. Um, what's something about yourself that you refuse to hide? Wow. Gosh, I'm hiding so many things. Hey, this is the back nine. This is the back nine, right? It's taking you home like the Tiger Woods. You got to get to the clubhouse. Yeah. What I refuse to hide. Okay, so this is a thing that I've always hidden. And that I'm lately just saying out loud is that... I never wanted kids. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Like it's never yeah. been okay to say that. And yeah. so, you know, you have, if you're a woman, every woman wants kids, right? But it's like, when people ask me about it, I would usually him and Holland be like, yeah, yeah, kids are lovely. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I mean? And now I'm like, I just, I just never liked kids. And that's the truth, you know? So, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to say still, but I think I'm, I'm at this point, it's true. It's probably free and cathartic as well. Because I'm sure on every flight you're on, people are like, 
are you married? Do you have kids? Like, right. And you're like, okay, like, how do I say like, and I'm okay with it. Right. Like, it's not right. You don't have to feel sorry for me. Like the pity comes like, oh, poor exactly. thing. You didn't have kids. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's unnecessary. <laughs> it's like, I am completely fine. Well, you, again, you've coined the term, um, club adjacent. Mm -hmm. So, um, this may not be relevant to you, but what is a club that you've claimed as your own? Well, like I said, the church club and I would say the Stanford Weirdo Club. And I would say, um, weirdly, and I didn't fit into this like demographically, but when I was cycling for the AIDS ride, um, everybody there was gay or lesbian and I'm heterosexual um, and they were all white and I was black, you know, but there was there was uh we got each other you know so i almost don't think it's always about like are you exactly like me as much as like can we can we connect and bond over like strange weird things i felt really comfortable and really like like that was my family for a period of time you know and so i think those are my top three no that's cool like I, and i think that that's what you're describing about the stanford experience right is like it's this eclectic group of people that you wouldn't think on paper like how would they get along but it's not it's the essence it's the energy that i think keeps drawing us all back to, to stanford and being in that space um that you have no that's great so um let's say you were um going to a nice restaurant in the oc which i know you hate me saying uh in orange county uh restaurant you have reservations for five what other four other people would you invite to dinner with you either living or, or deceased oh deceased too <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you made it harder. I know. Um. Oh gosh. Five people living or deceased. Can I do five living and five deceased? No. Oh. <laughs> you know that's for another episode. Oh, <laughs> Our producers are like, wrap it up. I know. Like, you right? got. You got to do four people. Okay, deceased just takes me on a journey I can't go on right now. So I'm gonna do living. Cause I mean, shoot, there's so many historical characters that I could pick up and like, I can't even, that's, that's we don't have time for that. So I'm gonna do living people. I would say you'd get the invite, Miss oh, Taylor. Yes, yes. Um, my friend Jack um, would be there who I played volleyball with at Stanford. Um, my sister Kim would probably be there. Um, and uh, I would say my friend Jeff, who you know, Jeff Perlman, if y'all are watching Winning Time on HBO, that is his show. He's a writer that I met at Sports Illustrated, who's a really dear friend of mine. And number five, I would say, and this is where it gets weird, um, because it's like, now I'm worrying about how we get along at the table, right? And so like, it's like, okay, these are all kind of certain kinds of people. And then I have like my other kind of people, right? And it's like, would we all be able to get through a brunch together without killing each other, right? right, right yeah. So I might, that's, my friends are also eclectic, right? So yeah. I have hardcore religious right friends. I have yeah. straight up left wing friends. I have gay friends, Muslim friends, all colors, Jews, you know, like I have everybody in the spectrum. And one of my big worries is that if I do ever get married, having all those people in the same room <laughs> is like, is like my nightmare, you know? Let it go. We will all be celebrating <laughs> you in that moment, right? We will right? be celebrating you in that moment. Right? So I think the four of you 
would be would be great, right? And then I get to my like out, outer friends. Well, you friend. only have five people, so it includes you. So that's oh, your I'm four. the fifth. Oh, okay, yeah, let's yeah. leave it there. But let's just say there are a lot of other groups of people that would would come into that I would have dinner with, but not all together. Well, that's a good group. I would like let's make reservations. Like right now that things have opened up in COVID, like you know having Jeff and Kim and Jack and you and I, like that'd be a great conversation. That would be fun. Yeah, let's make that happen. Our last question on the back nine. Um, how do you center yourself? Oh, gosh. I've just learned this. So, you know, um, I do mindfulness now. So I, I'll, I'll tell you that mindfulness has changed my life, right? Like, So I've always been Christian and had a relationship with God and prayer has always been a big thing. Um, but I'm realizing that part of prayer isn't just talking to God and saying, I want this, I want that, this is happening, fix this, fix that. And it's sitting and being still and being able to listen and being able, like you said, center yourself, ground yourself, calm yourself, all the chaos that's in my world, all the busyness that I'm running from thing to thing doing, it all stops for like even just a few minutes. And I, I can tell I'm a completely different person after I meditate or, or do mindfulness exercises than before. And so that has been a way that I have both connected with God and connected with myself. And um, it, it's, changed, it's changed everything. So important. So important, for, particularly for action-oriented, results-driven people who like you're constantly in motion and activity and thinking that that is the thing for you to be able to center yourself is so important. Well, Beth, where can people find you? What are some of the things that you're up to these days? Well, right now I'm earning my hours towards my counseling degree and towards um, licensure, but there are things coming in the works that aren't quite uh, up and running yet, but look for me in the future to be finding ways to work with young athletes as they're coming up. Also working with trauma, um, working with racialized trauma, you know, um, these are the things that I'm kind of thinking about, um, mental health for athletes, mental health for trauma survivors, mental health for, um, people of color. And so, um, you know, we'll be announcing that at some point, um, but it's all still kind of coming together in my head. Um, but it's, but it's starting to come together. So keep an eye out. Yeah. Well, I am hopeful for, you know, wherever that journey leads you, because I think that all of those things are needed and you do have such a unique perspective um, and such a kind hearted soul to want to give and to help have an impact uh, on others. So I appreciate you and all the chaos <laughs> that you have going on in your life, um, carving out some time to, to join us on Unlocking the Club. This has been a great conversation. But as I mentioned before, it's not going to be the last one with Beverly. Um, she's going to be invited back on a regular basis to talk about sports, to talk about current events in, in, across the globe, politics, and certainly around mental health for athletes, racialized trauma, uh, and trauma for uh, marginalized um, and um, typically um, ex excluded individuals. So, Bev, thank you for, for joining us today. Look forward to those conversations. And thank you all for, for joining us on another episode of Unlocking the Club. We truly appreciate you listening into these conversations, and we hope that listening to our discussion today, um, it unlocks something in you and for you. And until next time, be well. Thanks for listening to Unlocking the Club. If this conversation resonated with you, 
subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite streaming platform so that you can experience every episode. And follow us on social media where you'll hear about future guests, access special features, and connect with this amazing community. Head on over there and let us know how you are unlocking the club. Until next time, peace.